everyone, and welcome back to the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined with a special guest, Stephen Kelly, Associate Director at the Yale School of Management, who studies financial stability. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Andrew. So I wanted to kick today's episode off by kind of explaining a slight reformatting and why I think today's conversation is really important, along with a bunch of thank yous to both Stephen for his time and you know the rest of the audience for being so engaging. So about five years ago, I joined Nth Round. Chris and Graham McConnell took me on as one of the very first hires, and we were looking to try to solve some of the most complex pieces of the private market infrastructure, including liquidity. That is something that I'm sure people know by now, just in knowing me and the company, but I wanted to say thank you to Chris and Graham. Also, what people may not know is that I have been studying liquidity provisions for quite some time with one of my best friends, Beach from Zern Kilton, an undergrad. And this is kind of where this conversation all started. I reached out to the Yale School for the first time, maybe close to eight years ago. So I just wanted to say thank you to all those involved. And thank you for Stephen for what I'm sure is going to be an incredible conversation relevant to CFOs who are trying to better understand risk uh, and how to mitigate it. And maybe some kind of aspects of how to manage risk in a more international environment in today's kind of unprecedented times. So, Stephen, I want to kick it off to you and would love for you to introduce yourself and explain kind of how you got situated at Yale and some of your focuses. Yeah, so I'm at the Yale program on financial stability. We're sort of like a quasi think tank inside the Yale School of Management. So we're very much a, a finance program. You know, we're not we're not economists. We're not lawyers. We really we're really sort of mechanics almost, you know, a mar- you know, real market realists thinking about particularly how to fight financial crises as they occur, sort of the break the glass playbook. So our chair is Tim Geithner. He's a you know former Treasury Secretary. He was at the New York Fed, you know, when, when the 2008 crisis really started and then and then became Treasury Secretary. And so he kind of saw really, you know, firsthand the costs of, you know, even a, a day, an hour of not knowing what to do as a crisis fighter. And there's a huge apparatus out in the world in academia, in international institutions to think about prevention, um, think about crisis prevention. But the thing is, if you're at, you know, something like the IMF, the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, you kind of have to say, okay, here's our prevention framework and it's going to work. And you start asking questions of like, okay, what happens when it fails and there's a crisis anyways? And, you know, you, you get shut down. You, nobody wants to talk about a crisis for fear of causing one, right? I mean, you keep, as a policymaker, you can't go out and say, here's all the things we're thinking about for when there's a financial crisis. But we know we have them. I mean, there's, there's basically always one going on somewhere in the world, at least one. I mean, this is sort of the IMF's job. So anyways, we're really focused. We, we sort of pick up the baton there. We have a lot of political insulation here. And, and because the, the things that are done in a crisis are really unpopular. I mean, the things that work, again, it goes back to the sort of market mechanics, the things that make banks function and, and make the system really get back to standing on its feet are really unpopular. It's things like rescuing banks and, you know, keeping executives who made mistakes in their jobs because they know where the bodies are buried and they know how to get us out of this. And, you know, spending money at the government level, like bigger deficits, things like that, you know, it's just a lot of policies that are really unpopular. Um, so it helps to have sort of political insulation to just say, okay, here's what works, do with it what you will. Yeah. So really, I mean, I, I came into this space to work on 2008 and that quickly got sidetracked by 2020. I mean, you know, COVID w- was not a financial crisis in, in sort of the classic sense, but 
you know, we we used a lot of the same tools. Obviously, it was sort of an all of government approach. So you have you had the financial crisis tools being pulled off the shelf, but you also had, you know, every other the Department of Education doing stuff and, and the FDA and whoever, you know, everybody was working on that. And so that was sort of a crisis avoided. And then now COVID is like my historical example, <laughs> you know, and I'm teaching 2023 and talking about 2023 as really a more traditional banking crisis. And so, you know, we're, we're obviously working on 2023 and and sort of improving the, the crisis fighting apparatus, which really got got sort of hamstrung post 2008, because like I said, this, this stuff is really unpopular. Can you break down some of the tools and levers that are actually being pulled during crises? what those conversations actually entail. I, I think it might be relevant and maybe timely as CFOs think about communicating risk to investors, to the board, and maybe they can learn something about how you communicate internally. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the, the biggest thing, and it, it's almost a meme at this point, is, is the Fed and the money printer as being sort of the first crisis response. So obviously you can talk about cutting interest rates. It's not always fit for purpose. I mean, this sort of goes back to the difference between a, a recession and sort of a garden variety recession and a financial crisis. I mean, if you take like the standard recession response and you superimpose it over March 2023 or 2008, for sure, 2008, you have you repeat the Great Depression. I mean, it just wouldn't have worked. So, you know, the Fed's got all these other tools they can use to sort of provide liquidity to the financial system more broadly talking about being hamstrung, they can't really do the rescues that they used to. So there's sort of a, a you know, it, it, it's sort of a, we talk about the Fed put, like the Fed is always going to be there to rescue the market. And that's sort of a misconception. It's sort of a misread of the Fed's job to be a put on the economy, basically. It, they, they don't really care about the market, except for the extent to which it represents something going on in the economy. And we've sort of gotten, we've sort of seen that borne out in the last couple of years. Like, serious bear events and the fed has said we're going to keep hiking so the 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 fed can do stuff on the margin its job gets complicated one by being hamstrung by post-crisis regulation which says you can't rescue one firm at a time anymore illegal so what you did for bear stearns what you did for aig yes you saved the world but we're congress and we don't like it there's sort of a famous instance where the fed dispensed 85 billion dollars to aig overnight and that was a whole story in itself. AIG had like shopping carts of literal collateral. They were like running down the street, like to the Fed. I mean, it's a crazy situation. And Ben Bernanke, who was chair of the Fed, is talking to, to some leaders of Congress at the time. And Barney Frank goes, where did you get $85 billion? And Ben Bernanke goes, I have $800 billion, you know, because the, the money printer really is powerful. So you can see how Congress wouldn't like something like that. Right. Um, and they said, all right, you can do market stuff, but you can't rescue a firm anymore. Okay, so that that makes life harder. What we saw in 2023 was the FDIC guaranteeing deposits, um, uninsured deposits. And the difference there between that and the past, again, this is post-GFC stuff, post-global financial crisis stuff, is the FDIC can't help an open bank anymore. So the Congress said, hey, if you're a bank, you have to fail before the FDIC is going to help you. So again, you know, it's just making life harder. It's making things more stressful. And the Treasury, again, is pretty limited. They have some discretionary funds, but not many. And so these are kind of the tools at our disposal, but they're they're weaker than they used to be when when we really get into, into crisis trouble. And the other thing is, I mean, ideal world, banks play, you know, a, a sort of insular role to the economy. Like when you're in trouble, you should be able to go to your banker. 
And when the economy is in trouble, it should be able to go to its banks and the banks sort of underwrite the economy. And even that is a little squishier than it used to be because banks have to hold so much more capital now and their their risk taking is so much more controlled. And that's why you see these sort of like weird market blowups that that CFOs have had to deal with. Where you're like, what's going on in the treasury market all of a sudden? Or like, right. what's going on with commodities all of a sudden? Like, wh- why are these weird things breaking? And it's because we used to just let banks like underwrite that and banks just could just blow up their bit, like just increase their balance sheets and we trusted them. And that's good. I mean, the flip side is like the the short version of 2007, 2008 is like, okay, 2007 housing gets soft and all these like little things start breaking that banks are sort of supporting. And they say, all right, put it on our balance sheet. We'll take it. It's fine. Like this is, we'll, we'll buy the dip basically, but it wasn't the dip. Like the, the real dip was coming and then the banks blow up because they had taken all this risk. So you can see like that was sort of the trade-off that policymakers made, but where we're at and where that leaves us is banks themselves are much less willing to intervene. So that's why we're in like, you know, we're in a strong economy. We have high interest rates and central banks are still, it's still every day. You see a headline, like, is the Fed going to rescue this market? Is the ECB going to rescue that market? It's like, how can we do like, how, why is this happening when the economy is so strong? And, and that's why because balance sheets in the private sector are just, are just stickier. Right. I'm curious if you think that there's going to be a uh interesting intersection of new technologies playing a role in maybe some of the more predictive elements of um, making these decisions. I'm also curious as to if you think that there's a chance for technology to better predict and suggest what should be generally accepted collateral, because we're going to talk about the health of a bank balance sheet or even a company balance sheet. Yeah. It's uh, you know what's considered actually generally accepted collateral. I think student loans are considered generally accepted collateral. So then the bigger question is, you know, how often is that being rehypothecated? Where is it being stored in banks around the world? And I mean, is it, are there things that aren't even being tracked that are incredibly toxic? You know, there have been suggestions, um, you know, I was researching, uh, it's interesting to see some blockchain applications coming to life about, you know, tracking debt uh, in a more transparent way. That's somewhat interesting, but likely pretty inefficient and difficult to do as well. But I'm curious as to where you view that intersection of all of these new AI tools and maybe some uh, CFOs can glean some insights from how you're observing it from the academic level. Yeah, it's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, because, you know, I guess it's my natural inclination to say, okay, what's what what's going to happen in peacetime and what's going to happen in crisis time? Right. And in peacetime, this seems great. Like you get huge efficiencies from, you know, staffing perspective to the extent that AI and blockchain and these things can can make payments faster. You know, you you catch more float. You know, you lose less float to stuff like that. But when it comes to crisis, it's sort of a double edged sword because one thing is one thing that's nice is sort of in a crisis, people get nervous and people look where they can for cash. So one thing they do is they just go to their counterparties and they go, mm, "I think you you owe us a little more collateral." All of a sudden, I don't like this mark. Right. And so to the extent you can have AI or smart contract that's, you know, sort of, you know, blockchain based smart contract that's governing the valuations. If you're that counterpart, you can say, no, no, no. Right. That's what it says, what it says. I don't know you anything. I mean, this was a big thing again, you know, in 2008 is people just wouldn't answer phones. I mean, and that's sort of good. Like if, if AIG had been governed by smart contracts and AI valuations, they would have gone bankrupt before the Fed could rescue them. Like, the, the biggest thing they did was just say, I don't agree with your marks. I'm not sending you money, Goldman Sachs. And then Goldman Sachs would go to the Fed and say, come on, we're, you know. And so 
that that like buy time is actually really important. And, and really what we see across crises is that contracts are sort of loosely enforced or not enforced, that like laws are straight up broken. And the penalty is often either not guilty or guilty and the damages are $1. Like, so to the extent you start moving money from, you have AI governing that, um, you sort of lose that human discretion to basically you know, break the law or break a contract, right. which actually has systemic benefits. We don't know the contagion effects all of the time of every counterparty. So, you know, we right. don't know, you know, like a classic run on a bank, right? If everyone is sprinting at the same time or it's governed by something that's automatic, it would, right. it could have the potential to have, you know, catastrophic events. And, and the other thing is, is thinking about accounting standards, like yeah. when, a, when a, when an asset goes illiquid, like, the accounting for it changes. I mean, you're allowed to make certain exceptions for, okay, I no longer think I'm supposed to, you know, this is a level one price anymore. I think there's some sort of better model valuation, whatever. You you marked a model instead of marking the market. Right. And okay, that's sort of like, okay, you're dodging your marks on the one side. And on the other side, you're like, well, maybe the marks really are bad and you're not going to sell. So it, again, it, it goes back and forth. And, and we see like the SEC and others deal with this in a crisis. Like, Sometimes they'll get calls to, you know, ban short selling or change the accounting. And sometimes they come out and say, look, anything that's a liquid, stick with your old marks, like whatever. Um, and other times they don't. So it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to write into code, basically. Right. Interesting. What are some of the non-obvious reactions that also cause more harm that uh, at an individual or a business level just don't serve the, the purpose of stability? Are there, uh, you know, kind of gut reactions that you've seen a lot of financial folks make that in kind of wartime have caused more harm than good? It's tough to say because usually what's happening in a financial crisis is everybody's acting rationally and collectively it doesn't make sense. Like collectively it's horrible, but you can't blame any of the individuals for running on the bank or whatever else. I mean, when you have a deposit or, you know, something that you're expecting to pay out at par you really have no incentive to worry about that. It's just you're there or you're not there because you've done no valuation, right? I mean, so to the extent you think things are safe, I'm working this field and I don't, I haven't analyzed my own bank's balance sheet, like to the extent of knowing whether it's like credit good, you know, but I don't have to think about it. Like I just, I have a bank that's safe and, and I've got deposit insurance and all that. But to the extent I all of a sudden have to think about it, I'll take my money out and figure it out later. So it's tough to say because it, it's totally rational to just hear a rumor and move your money. I mean, it, it's really that simple. You see, you see your banker at the bar and you go, you know what? No, what? I forget about it. And the, I mean, the, the flip side too is like institutional money can often get a lot of yield by helping the financial sector take risks. So if you're, if you're, a, you know, you're sitting on a big pile of cash on your balance sheet as a CFO, as a treasurer. You've got way more than deposit insurance is going to do you any good for, right? So you're invested in money market funds, you're invested in other things, and maybe there's not that many treasury bills out in the world, or maybe they're maybe they're yielding zero. And you go, all right, I'll take an extra 50 bips to to buy some commercial paper, to buy some repos, because it rolls every night. And right. so as soon as I get nervous, I'm gone and I've made an extra 50 bips on my you know billion dollar cash pool in the meantime. And so that works perfectly from that CFO's perspective and from that business's perspective. They just harvested 50 basis points buying like short-term private paper. 
and they got out as soon as things got remotely nervous. But what they did was finance, you know, really maturity transformation, short-term funding into some long-term thing, and then they ran on it. So again, it, it makes sense from a private perspective, and it's sort of not managed well systemically. Well, I know you've just spent the last six months basically analyzing Silicon Valley Bank and likely uh, Credit Suisse and mm. a lot of pretty eventful transactions and failures yeah. events this year. So I'm really interested in hearing maybe at a, just a high level what you've been focused on, uh, any any learnings that have arisen maybe towards the end of your research, and if there are insights that we can learn uh, that just we haven't, you know, normal folks like me haven't had the time to sit around and study as closely as I'm sure you have. Yeah, I mean, as far as like broad lessons, especially considering your CFO audience, I would say a few things. One is there's always a price for sort of turnkey niche service. So, the, you know, the, the advantages that SVB had were, uh, they're like, okay, we're tech. We're going to help tech. We understand tech companies in a way that JP Morgan and Bank of America don't. We can help you. We can get you access to these, you know, fun events and whatever else. And that's fine. And that's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a business model that says we're going to help an industry that we think is underserved. But when it comes to finance, you really don't want like nicheness. You don't want something that's innovative necessarily when it comes to like the base of your pyramid of finance, like your deposits and your payroll. And, and so that's the business that's going to fail. And that's, that's a business model that makes a ton of sense. If it's got a huge balance sheet behind it, like it works great inside like JP Morgan bought first Republic which right. banks a lot of these tech, and they're going to make a ton of money. And the first citizens bankers are going to HSBC and they're going to MUFJ. Like big banks want this service and they have the stability of the, of the big balance sheet behind it. But when you go niche, customers of SVB and, and these related banks got a lot of particular services in the meantime, but the cost was they had a bank that can go. Like JP Morgan is not a bank that will disappear and really risk it, it, its its depositors and people using its services. So that's sort of the price that's hard to see, I think, in finance is there's a huge cost to using someone who's not diversified and really has a specialization. The other big takeaway, I think, is really to stay engaged with your equity investors, especially especially in finance, but really across the board, that junior layer of of funding, when that disappears, the rest of the capital structure collapses because you have you know debt holders all of a sudden become equity holders. In the case of banks, if you're a deposit holder, you're gone, right? If you're if you're a short-term debt holder, you're gone. So when SVB announces on March 9th and they said, look, we tried to do this equity raise uh, for 2.25 billion, we did not get the funds. We got like uh, we got half a billion, and we're going to try to raise the rest. The run was on. So you really always want to have contingent capital that can come in and you can sort of say, as soon as you need the capital, you can say we have it. Um, you don't want to be in a situation where you're like, okay, we need equity. It's different if you need to raise debt, you need to raise whatever. Whatever. If you lose that junior layer, everybody else is going to feel like they're they're now the junior layer. Like that, it just, trans, it just waterfalls down the capital structure. So really the biggest thing is stay in touch with that junior layer of funding and have a contingent you know, junior layer. And same with Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse 
basically failed sideways for, I, I mean, you can go back as far as you want, years, certainly months. They had all this time in the world, you know, yeah, they're trading at four bucks a share, but they're sort of muddling along. And then their biggest shareholder goes on the news and Bloomberg News says, would you put more money in? And he says, absolutely not. Poor choice of words, but that was it. I mean, the, the Swiss National Bank will tell you themselves. They said that was the moment that this thing unraveled. So really, again, it's being in close communication with your equity investors uh, and having, you know, contingent equity ready to go, basically, uh, as ready to go as you can. So you don't have to say, hey, we need equity. We're going to go try to get it. You can say we needed equity and we got it. You mentioned a few times at the beginning that you feel like we have a really strong economy. And I'm curious as to how you think about stacking up different levels of maybe market risk at the moment. And then I'm very curious as to the ongoing debate. I'm not sure if you listen to the All In podcast. Everyone on that show constantly debates whether or not it's even important as the US, as we're you know, kind of a global reserve currency still. And is there a country that's better off than us? And does that even matter? So curious as to how you're thinking about consumer debt being at an all-time high, 13-year low of home purchases in the US. I think a lot of the institutional dollars are buying now even single-family homes. And did you know the collapse of SVB collapse other regional banks? And do those regional banks actually add a layer of diversification or are they too small of a, of a pool to really matter? So I know that's a lot of different pieces kind of stacked uh, together, but it's just how I'm thinking about some of the, some of the kind of post-recession realities that we're living in right now and how, that, how you measure that. Because again, you mentioned that we, you feel we have still a very strong economy. Yeah. So I guess I could say a few things, trying to go in reverse order. The regional bank question is very much an open one as far as, you know, do we need these banks? What role do they play in the economy? Does it make sense for them to, you know, merge and get bigger? Does it make sense for them to downsize and specialize more? I mean, certainly what we saw from 2023 is is the, the barbell of the financial system has held up. Okay. So the big banks did fine. Community banks, they're like super so niche. I mean, obviously they're dependent on a local economy then, which is risky and they fail, you know, more frequently than big banks, but they weren't necessarily vulnerable to the kind of runs that that took down, you know, three regional banks. So that's very much an open question. And policymakers are sort of wrestling that with that of do we want this sort of barbell financial system? Generally they say no, but it's hard to be a regional bank that's not quite at scale and be stable in all environments, especially if you want to be neat. Like if you want to be niche, you really want to be small. And if you want to be stable, you want to be big. So th there's kind of natural gravitational pulls each way. As far as like the economic effect that we've seen, you know, th there's been some ongoing tightening in lending. We obviously didn't have a financial crisis. Part of that was the nature of the run. Like I said, it was on these, these more specialized banks. There was never really you know, that feeling of like, oh my God, this is going to go to Goldman Sachs and this is going to take down Morgan Stanley. Like we just, we just never had that, which is good. You know, if you can keep the core of the system intact, you're in a good spot, but certainly at the margin, it, it, it you know, it, it contributes to a tightening of credit, but that's also kind of what the Fed wants. So, the, you know, they don't like when banks fail, but at the same time, it did some of their, their rate tightening for them. The question of reserve currency. Yeah, this is, sort of an evergreen debate and it sort of changes its form. I mean, sort of the, the most recent iteration is like, okay, well, I guess it's two things. The most recent iteration is the Fed or the, the US government like is going to shut down or it's going to hit the debt ceiling and default and that's bad for treasuries. 
And the other thing is like, okay, the U.S. has started using sanctions more as a weapon. So do other countries really want to still hold dollars and 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 really stash their money in 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 a way that can be sanctioned so easily? And you know, I, I would say we're a long way from this. This sounds almost you know scary to say, but the U.S. best exporter, one of its best exports, is its financial system is debt. You know, we have the legal structure, we have the right institutions in place to basically produce a ton of treasury debt that the world needs. You know, we have it. We have a strong economy. We have an advanced economy. We're we're sort of we have liquid capital markets. We have a strong legal structure, and those things really drive invoicing in dollars globally and and holding reserve assets in dollars globally. Um, and that's that's a hard thing to replicate and replace. You know, it, it wasn't too long ago we were talking about breaking up the eurozone. China obviously doesn't have free movement of capital and is is you know a highly political. So it's hard to see a rival really replace the dollar, particularly, you know, in, in the short to medium term. So that I mean, that's that's kind of my response there. Thinking about the role of institutional trust in a system uh, like ours and perhaps some of the degradation from the public and in institutional trust when it comes to maybe COVID responses, maybe government and governing in general, and then, you know, in the even more complex system like the Fed and responses to crises and communicating those responses and then, you know, going into, you know, into government and having politicians maybe do not the best job in explaining the details as to some of the decisions, you know, how you know, there were positive externalities from the global financial crisis that are hard to discuss because it was, you know, a, a huge, you know, life altering moment for most Americans. So kind of curious as to how you think of your role in kind of, a, is it reestablish, is it helping to reestablish some of that institutional trust in the financial system? How do you see that changing as in forms of when you communicate either to, you know, like, like we are now, or uh, just even internally with your team? Yeah, I, I think certainly, you know, obviously we're focused on crisis response and, and this sort of relates to your question about like, you know, the, the dollars, the U.S. role globally is the extent to which the U.S. can credibly, you know, sort of rescue, underwrite the global system and communicate that to the world of like, okay, we are here. That does wonders for us. I mean, a big thing the Fed does and the U.S. government does, and this this really this really goes under the radar. Like even Congress doesn't pay attention to this, and it's like one of the biggest things the Fed does is it sends a bunch of dollars overseas in a crisis. So. During COVID, during the GFC, like trillions, hundreds of billions rolled over to foreign central banks and the foreign central banks send the money out into their economies because people need dollars and, and there's a demand for dollars. And that is hugely supportive of a dollar system globally. And sort of that commu that communicates a real credibility of the U.S. You know, globally to say, like, we are not going to let this thing burn. We are not going to let politics interfere with our role and with underwriting this system that serves the globe. And so I do think that's, you know, those communications and, and more, more importantly, the, the, the following through. And again, it goes back to institutional credibility. They can point to their authorities and say, look, we can do this. We will do it as necessary. And as you know, that often does the work for them. It's just saying we're here. We'll do it if we need to. And the market takes a lot of comfort in that. 
Yeah, that's really, really a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I do think there are a lot of a lot of aspects of the work that goes, you know, into these crisis response that are not well discussed or publicized. So I'm glad we have an opportunity to do that. Um, yeah. I'm curious as to what brought you to your focuses in general. You know, I remember, you know, like I mentioned earlier, just having a buddy who was really, really interested in, you know, perceived versus realized liquidity in ETFs and ETNs, you know, the, some of the most liquid instruments on the planet. And when those flash crashes occur, where mm-hmm. you know, actual capital is moving in and out of individual stocks and that was my foray. I was hooked immediately on liquidity now in private markets as well. But curious as to the, you know, some of those early interests that led you into your role now. Yeah, like I kind of alluded to, it was really global financial crisis and sort of exactly that phenomenon I explained earlier with Ben Bernanke and Barney Frank of like, oh, I have $800 billion. Like that dynamic of, you know, there's all these authorities and all the all this crazy firefighting that can be done or should be done, or we don't know what should be done. That really is the difference between a, a recession and a depression. And I was like, okay, this is this is a big issue. This is really financial, but it's also policy. And, you know, something that can draw a line under a recession and prevent it from becoming a depression. I mean, that was just really interesting to me. My My undergrad was in finance and political science, you know, obviously great professors, uh, political economy professors, and so, yeah, and then did more work in capital management, which was kind of in this sphere and, and a master's in systemic risk. And so th- it all sort of kind of came together as like, all right, let's think about the next crisis that's going to happen in 70 years. And then COVID happened and then 2023 happened. And, you know, we're, we're us financial crisis people are few and we're supposed to be like cicadas, you know, we're supposed to just sort of disappear and and come back very rarely and, you know, instead of every couple of years. So it's proved more more immediately useful than, you know, I was expecting to write a dusty book and put it on the shelf and have someone dust it off and hopefully use it in some future crisis. And instead, um, you know, we've been on the phone, like you said, for the last six months. So what might be interesting, well, I'm interested personally, but, you know, whether it's podcasts or books that you're reading, when you're, when you're going to seek out information, maybe you have an incredibly curated Twitter or X or LinkedIn or something, but when you're going to seek out information, what are some of the uh, resources that you use? Obviously, you've got Yale, all the resources of the university, but are there other places that maybe I've never heard of or maybe CFOs can go to as well outside of, you know, the too frequent Wall Street Journal notifications on our iPhones? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny you say that I do have what I what I think is a highly curated X feed, and I'm I'm I think I'm going to be the last person to leave because I, <laughs> I I don't remember how to go type in like WallStreetJournal.com and just like scroll. But you know, I I always tell tell people to to find reporters that they like and trust and and try to follow their work. So that really can make your life easier and, and you know help you narrow those notifications that you get. As far as podcasts, I think broadly, I got to I got to shout out Bloomberg Odd Lots. Um, I know that's a pretty popular one, but but still, you know, doesn't have perfect penetration. Obviously, Bloomberg Odd Lots they really sort of it's sort of the what's hot in the economy, but also it really they really do a deep dive and get detailed. Um, so that's that's a fun one. There's a couple a week, and it's always you know they'll do everything from like what's going on in the lumber trading market to, you know, what's what's going on in the macro economy. So you sort of get, you can sort of skip around as you please. But yeah, I mean, I sort of, I also have the luxury that, you know, practitioners don't, which is my job is to read and write. So I, I kind of, you know, I'm always reading Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. 
Shout out to Financial Times Alphaville. If you don't follow them, you don't even need a Financial Times subscription. They do great work. It's a collection of journalists that, you know, cover market research. They cover stuff going on and, and they do it in a really thinly edited way. So it, it's it's honestly just like free sell side research. So yeah, Financial Times Alphaville, um, got to give a shout out to them too. That's awesome. I appreciate that. I'm thinking more in terms of the next 12 months, what you're most focused on. I know you've kind of had your eyes pinned on the rear view mirror in all the events that have taken place, yeah. but what should CFOs be on the lookout for that maybe are there leading or lagging indicators that are just not obvious that you know, people can be drilled into in case they can notice something that seems irregular for them? Yeah, I mean, I would say my eyes are very much still on the banking situation, um, even after all this time. I was very much pushing the narrative in May-ish, you know, that that in in April, May, that what we saw in March was confined to those banks. And it really wasn't, like I said before, it, we never had that feeling of like, this is going to go viral. This is going to go to Morgan Stanley. This is going to go to JP Morgan. And that's because it was sort of misdiagnosed at the time. It was like, oh, this is a run on the banking system. And it really wasn't. It was a run on, you know, tech, crypto-y banks, which tech and crypto themselves were kind of in recession. So that it, it makes sense that their banks you know, when, when the economy goes into recession, banks go into recession. So when the tech economy goes into recession, the tech banks are going to go into recession. Is that clear from the beginning or no? Did it, that it, wasn't the, it wasn't the narrative. I would say it wasn't clear that very weekend, but it was, you know, again, I was pushing it pretty quickly because we just, we, we haven't gotten any new banks that we're worried about since then. Like that March week, we got like, you know, 10 banks in particular that we were worried about and they've all sort of been figured out. Like, you know, Three of them failed and two of them raised capital and the other one merged and, you know, and the rest, you know, did fine or whatever. Like we sort of figured that situation out. That being said, the narrative was this is a run on the banking system because rates are so high and uninsured deposits are so many. But why that makes me more nervous than the, than the narrative now is that run is still out there. Like there is still the possibility if rates move higher, a run on unrealized losses um, a run on uninsured deposits. So I, I'm still thinking about that and watching that because the, the narrative is very much, oh, we saw that run and it got it, it got quashed, but it, really we didn't. We saw a run on tech and crypto, which which makes a little more sense. So that that's kind of still what my eyes are on. And I'm thinking about the banking system. That being said, it's not my base case. Um, and again, it goes back to, are your relationships inevitable? Banking with SVB, that's not inevitable banking with jp morgan like not to pick you know not to tell you who to bank with but like again there, there's an unseen price to going for specialty service and going for nicheness which is you lose that benefit of diversification that a behemoth has and and the, you know the government relations and all that stuff i think as a cfo and when i see multiple headlines it's very difficult to go from an svb collapse to credit swiss collapse to interest rates rising without stringing those together and planning as if they were all linked. Right. I'm curious how you separate the, communicate separating those events as isolated and not trends and what does link them to becoming trends so that, you know, you can start to piece together the health of and stability of the economy. Yeah, I do think, you know, the, the U.S. bank failures that we saw were related to each other, but not necessarily, you know, they didn't necessarily foreshadow more. And Credit right. Suisse was 
was what you know it was a, a separate thing but the timing obviously is not a coincidence this so uh, the one thing i would say as far as pattern identification here yeah. is this is what happens in a world of much higher interest rates and as things start to break and so thinking about what your vulnerabilities are in that world you know just a lot of capital structures that made sense when the borrowing was good just don't make sense when when the yield curve inverts or when you have you know, the, the short-term rate sort of matches what you're getting on long-term or surpasses it. And so you start to see stuff that breaks. So again, it's about stress testing your counterparty relationships. You know, imagine you're going to lose a, a significant counterparty, whether it's your bank in the case of SVB or, you know, it's some other financial supplier in particular. Long before we saw banks fail, we saw like auto lending firms start to wobble. We saw you know, non-bank mortgage lenders start to wobble. We saw crypto explode, obviously. So all these things, you know, firms can just start to not make sense as the capital structure gets tightened. And so, you know, any good CEO knows that risk management isn't just risk mitigation. It's also thinking about risk tolerance and what risks are you willing to take? And I would suggest think about the next step of, okay, you've accepted some amount of risk. Let's say that risk is realized. What's your plan in place then? How are you know that's sort of that sort of crisis management step of okay let's let's assume we've got that loss that we said we would tolerate and how do we come back from that and how do we make sure we're not swept up in in their contagion? That's really the big step because stuff is is fragile in a way it hasn't been in a long time. You know the economy's stable, it's strong, and that sort of helps underwrite the some of the red flags you raised earlier, student debt and government debt and all these things. I mean, we live in, we live in a nominal world. So you can have big nominal numbers of these debts, but if if people's wages are going up, if jobs are going up, like all you know, that that's an offset. So if we do end up in a recession, again, the things will start to break and be a little more fragile. And so it's really about stress testing your balance sheet and those relationships and and starting from a point of, okay, let's say I failed, what happened? And sort of that reverse stress test of, okay, my balance sheet unwound. It's inconceivable to think of that my balance sheet would fail. But let's just start from that you know, supposition and work backwards. What would have happened? I mean, that's, I think that's a great piece for all CFOs to start thinking about more thoroughly, especially uh, in today's M&A market, which is becoming more ripe. I think, uh, I think you made a great point. I mean, the banks are uh, an interesting example where you know, JP Morgan has the stability to be able to acquire other types of assets like that. I think that's a great micro. I say microcosm, but you know, an interesting example more so for CFOs to think through not just mitigation, but planning for future acquisitions. One thing I really want to talk about, I'm I really love the the history of exchanges. We're in Philadelphia, uh, not far from the first Philadelphia stock exchange, you know, preceded by you know, something about a buttonwood tree in New York, and all the way back to Amsterdam. I, I'm interested in, and now we're actually we're uh, you know, near Vanguard here in Philadelphia, where you know Bogle and helped really spread the ETF uh, kind of craze. And I'm curious about some of the innovations that are taking place that are blending public and private markets that are facilitating more liquidity in, in both. And maybe if there's something that you're really excited about that's going to take place, you know, in the next three to five years from your perspective, mm -hmm. or maybe something like the convergence of public and private markets and what that may look like. But just because I know you've studied the history, I know you're deep in the trenches. I uh, would love to know what you're thinking, you know, three to five years from now, what the world may look like. Yeah. So, I mean, what I see is really 
uh, sort of a big matzo ball out there for innovation. And this is this is maybe going to sound surprising given uh, what's going on at, at the Southern District of New York court this week it is really some of this blockchain stuff. And I, I know the CFO audience is probably so sick of hearing blockchain this and AI that, but the crypto stuff is obviously like a joke. Um, I mean, all the coins and all that stuff. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's effectively useless. The underlying blockchain, there's a couple things that the biggest one, and you'll see big companies doing this already is supply chain. Right. And so what you can do on a blockchain, one is you can transfer ownership. So all the paperwork of a supply chain can go away. All the tracking um, can go away and be done via blockchain. But the the other big piece is that you can put physical goods and money on the same rails. So right now, you know, you think, oh, I deliver you a physical thing and we sign some paper and it transfers over and then you, you know, I write you a check or whatever, you know, and that whole exchange can be condensed down to one interaction of, okay, once the goods are transferred, the money, the money zips the other direction. And that's really going to innovate supply chains in particular. It's going to innovate finance to the extent, again, I mean, you're familiar with this thinking about exchanges and thinking about ETFs. Security settlement is such a nightmare. And the risk of failed trades, you know, or failed to deliver, I mean, that can all go away if you can get money and securities on the same rails. If it's not set, you know, oh, I send money via the bank and that sends it via the Fedwire and I send the securities on this exchange and then it settles and you're blah, blah, blah. If you can condense that down into one transaction, you know, three to five years, I'm not necessarily seeing that, but we are, you know, certain innovations are already happening in that space. Lots of banks are doing this. I mean, when they have big enough balance sheets, they can let their clients pay each other on their own blockchain. You can get paid on a Sunday, like things like that. So really that's sort of the slow moving innovative piece to come out of some of the hype of the last few years. Obviously AI, but I don't need to talk about that. Everyone sort of, that's a big question mark for everybody. Yeah. One of the things that was upsetting for me to realize in the deep dive of blockchain and, you know, different rails, you know, aligning is it doesn't change the counterparty risk to put, to disintermediate collateral chains is one thing, but the strength of the counterparty is still the strength of the counterparty. So you know, the efficiency is great. Uh, you know, nobody wants T plus 14 or something. It's yeah. closer to instantaneous settlement. I think that is strong. But one thing I was excited about initially when I was first learning about all this was, you know, could you disintermediate all these collateral chains? And again, it just doesn't impact the quality of, you know, the counterparty risk if, at the end of the day. If the, you know, and uh, other end of the, uh, you know, chain isn't holding up, then you're really not adding a layer of stability. Um, right. And if the money moves faster, you know, you, you may risk a blow up if everything's moving instantaneously. A little less it, fun part of immutability. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I, one of my favorite questions on the podcast doesn't have to be related to advance or to technology or even stability. One thing that you think is just genuinely underestimated in the world today, what would that be? Well, I guess I would keep it kind of related. I, I'm going to say the general desire to get things right among federal public servants, I think is high. I'm not talking about Congress necessarily, but there is just so much conspiracy out there with the Federal Reserve and with the Treasury, you know, Treasury Department and all these departments. And it's, I can say, at least in the case of, you know, the financial departments, it's really unwarranted. 
And I say that as someone who criticizes the Fed, criticizes policy, says, hey, you got this wrong or you didn't disclose this, you know, you should be doing this better. But there's really, really a, a lack of that sort of, you know, we are the puppet masters and and we're just going to tell people what we tell people and do the real thing behind the curtain. There's just a lot of cynicism, particularly on, on Wall Street and finance about the Fed. And it if you're thinking that the Fed is playing 4D chess, you're thinking two degrees too much. Like, and and a lot of financial analysts do this, and mm-hmm. it's it's often a more straightforward story of you know public servants trying to get it right. And so, I think the burden of proof is on the cynical version, and that's really not where it's typically cast, and it should be. So, anyways, that that's kind of what I'd say is broadly in finance that that the cynical the cynical assumption really is unjustified. Interesting. And you said it, you feel that it's coming from Wall Street, that that's where the... Especially. I, I mean, yeah, turn on Bloomberg News and turn and it's the, the Fed is manipulating the economy or the, you know, they're, they're hiding this or that, or they just want to get reappointed, you know. And we should be watching for those things, 100%. It just, it's not borne out. It's just really not. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think being public and having more conversations like this should, should help that. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, sometimes when you need somebody else to blame. The Fed is right there to be that for some folks. Yeah. Uh, and it's complicated. As you mentioned, there are um, some, of, some of our tools are less effective than they have been. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how some of our responses are modernized, how, the, how we think about the tech stack of the Fed uh, and some of yeah. the tools that we're going to be able to use in the future. Yeah, I would love to uh, first, I, we should know absolutely where we can find your writings. Uh, do you have a popular platform that you use to just share your thoughts or are you just yeah. uh, just publish? Uh, I'm most active. I mean, on Twitter, um, at Stephen Kelly 49 or X, I have a website where you can, I'll put out occasional free research notes sort of about market happenings. Cool. Um, that's without warning research.com without warning research.com. So yeah, it, it's financial stability stuff, fed stuff. And, you know, there's maybe one or two a month. Um, part of the reason for without warning is I, I don't really have a plan for when I put stuff out and then, you know, obviously publishing stuff through Yale, but that's maybe, you know, more for an academic crowd, but yeah, it's, it's sort of a markety, more, more sell sidey feel to the stuff I put out on my website. All right, cool. Uh, and for folks interested in maybe executive education or continuous education, where should people learn maybe more about you know, this financial stability department at Yale School of Management? Are there resources out there for CFOs to consider maybe doing something in the evenings or continuous programs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're always excited to talk to people and think about how they're managing financial stability. So I would encourage anyone to reach out. You know, we have a master's program that's really for people with a financial stability mandate. So this would be people who are working in banks like you know doing capital management or thinking about you know other financial stability aspects treasury things like that and also public officials globally obviously we have you know executive education mbas and all that stuff too but yeah you know poke around our website we have interviews with ex crisis fighters that are just insightful you know management interviews honestly like crazy stuff we have some interviews with some ex new york fed people from the 2008 crisis and uh, one guy didn't leave the building for 42 days. Yeah. So, and he's interesting because he was Tim Geithner's sort of second in command. And we we always try here to like, when we talk about crisis policy, sometimes we'll say like, oh, this is a wartime policy or peacetime policy. And 
we should we say like okay we shouldn't really use war analogies to describe like finance stuff and this guy had spent time in Iraq and he was like yeah the financial crisis was was more unsettling to me than being in Iraq so we're like gosh just when we're you know but uh anyway so th- there's cool interviews like that that are useful i think across you know just as management and crisis management and and thinking about how to run an organization in in, in sort of crazy times so um I, i'd advise checking those out too yeah i'll try to make sure that we link those in the show notes i know i'm definitely going to go watch them i mean we all think we have a perfect recollection of those days but uh hearing firsthand those interviews i'm sure will be really really entertaining and insightful so I'll definitely make sure that we can share those as well. Yeah, I also just wanted to say thank you one more time for all of your all of your you know, generosity and sharing all of your insights today. I know this is a slight departure from interviewing CFOs, and uh, I'm just happy that we have the opportunity still to have the flexibility to have these kind of conversations that I hope have evergreen value for folks. So just want to say thanks again for, for joining the show. Yeah, it's great to be here, Andrew. Thanks. It's been another episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and continue to follow on for more conversations with either great folks like Stephen or for more CFO interviews. 